ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 500 days of fighting in Ukraine, 9,000 civilians dead, maybe 100,000 soldiers killed. Now the war could get even deadlier. The United States has agreed to supply Ukraine with cluster bomb munitions. Ukraine is in a battle for survival after Russia's invasion last year. But what are the ethics of using cluster bombs and how long can this war go on? Professor Samuel Moyne of Yale University is one of the world's leading philosophers of law and human rights. Well, they're an extremely potent weapon, which is why Ukraine would like to use them to try to break through the Russian lines. And they basically explode and kind of have many bombs that are scattered And, you know, many of those don't explode. And if that happens, then they are kind of left in the landscape. But that's why they're so notorious. They're extremely effective at causing enormous damage, but they also have a penchant for doing very long-term damage because many years or decades later, people happen across where the fighting took place and explode one of the bomblets that was uh, strewn by the attack. Yes, I noticed that uh, something like 123 countries have signed a convention against cluster weapons. Three notable countries are not signatories, uh, Russia, Ukraine and the United States. Do we know why that is? There have been treaties against specific weapons since the 19th century going back to dum-dum bullets, chemical weapons, and sadly, most countries tend to sign treaties that cover weapons they no longer plan to use. I mean, even napalm has not been made fully illegal. And these countries are ones that, especially the great powers involved, my country and Russia, don't want to rule out the possibility of using these. Now, there is another treaty, the kind of main law of war treaty called the Additional Protocol to the Geneva Convention, which some people think effectively makes this kind of weapon illegal because one of the ground rules of the law of war is that you can't use indiscriminate weapons, weapons that in principle can't be used to save civilians And so there's at least an argument that even for those big countries, Russia and the United States, as well as Ukraine, this weapon is illegal, but it's a hard sell. The Ukrainian counteroffensive is reportedly stalling. Don't the Ukrainians who've requested these cluster bombs have the right to seek whatever weapons they can to reclaim their territory? They do, as long as the weapons aren't illegal. But by the same token, other powers like the United States have the right not to give them those weapons. That's why there's such a kind of international outcry. I don't think anyone contests Ukraine's kind of ground moral entitlement to engage in self-defense or even to ask for weapons as long as those weapons are legal. What people are contesting is their right to get those weapons. They're not entitled to anything from the United States or other allies. It's up to those countries to decide whether there are moral and legal limits on their generosity. The Russians have reportedly used cluster bombs. I mean, again, for argument's sake, the Russians have got it. Don't the Ukrainians have a right to use them? 
I don't know what your mother said, but mine always told me that two wrongs don't make a right. Mm. Uh, mine said pretty much the same thing. <laughs> there may be a legal right in the sense that if they find someone willing to give them cluster munitions, they have a right to take them. No law prohibits it. But they may not have a moral right in the same way that if your brother hits you, you may not have a moral right to hit him back with the same kind of fist. Just this week, Sam, Ukrainian President Vladimir Volensky has made a point. Perhaps it's almost been a highlight of the fact that the war has now reached its 500th day. Now, I can see how 500 days of resistance in defending your homeland is a matter of pride, but how do we end this war? Can we end this war by not escalating the conflict? From an outsider's perspective, it seems to have been a war stalemated almost from its first day when the Russians failed in their offensive and in spite of all the efforts, they are still in control of a goodly portion, although a small one, of Ukraine, the eastern part. It seems like an immobile war from that perspective, from the perspective on it as a kind of quagmire. It seems like this debate over cluster munitions is really just a kind of diversion from the harsh reality that this is an endless war with no prospect of further advance for either side. And that's the moment where I think any realist needs to say that the alternative to endless war is some kind of peace. It may be not perfectly just from the perspective of either side and certainly not from the Ukrainian side, but that's preferable to endless war. Now, it's a different question what the terms of negotiation would be, what Vladimir Putin would accept in his weakened situation and so forth. But if we continue the discourse where Ukraine has a moral right to every inch of territory, including Crimea, what we're really saying is that there are going to be more and more rounds of desperate requests for more weapons to stave off the Russians, which is really just keeping them in place where they've been since the first days of the war. Sam, you've spent a lot of time studying in detail conflicts, especially in the 20th century. How much is this looking now at day 500, like Iran, Iraq in the 1980s? How much is this looking like the Afghanistan quagmire, which really was a quagmire, first for the Soviets and then for the United States and its allies. How similar are the echoes? It's very similar, and you could throw on the list many other disputes, including the struggle over the borderlands between India and Pakistan, Kashmir, many other places. And in all of those situations, I think what we need in the first instance is some international political authority presumably the United Nations, to take over pending some later resolution. It's clear that there's no military solution. We can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, and we need to imagine that a peace that's not always as just as we might like, which is nonetheless preferable to endless war. Yeah, I saw a piece in The Atlantic a couple of uh, weeks ago by two fairly eminent uh, scholars saying there is a time for negotiation, but essentially the war's got to run its course, which to me meant 
a certain number of people have to die before we realise there's no choice to negotiations. I'm simplifying it, but how, how moral is that position? I mean, it strikes me as atrocious because if there's no purpose to a 500-day war other than loss of life, including civilian life, but military life as well, along with massive infrastructure, just to essentially reach the conclusion that was visible before any of the carnage, then what was the point? I mean, it was useless suffering, useless destruction. And the idea that we needed to experience it to reach the outcome strikes me as absurd, but also abhorrent. Ukraine is also ramping up its demand for NATO membership, which is perhaps, and I underline the word perhaps, one of the things that Russia took as a provocation and therefore its justification for its aggression. Is there, though, a moral case for NATO countries to continue to refuse the Ukraine? Because, look, the war's already started. And by the way, Finland, which I think has a border of comparable length with Russia, it's now in the club. So is there a moral case to say to Ukraine, no, you can't join? This is murky territory because de facto, the West and and my country in particular is defending Ukraine via weapons transfer, if not by using its own troops. Although I think there are a fair number of Americans, especially volunteer forces on the ground in Ukraine. If that's true, what NATO membership really means is this legal obligation to defend it in all circumstances. But the West is defending it de facto already. So maybe not a lot turns on it. If you think that there's a lot of symbolism in joining NATO, well, then we'd have to have a debate about whether that symbolism is more a source of provocation for the Russians than of safety for the Ukrainians. I'm not sure that it would add a lot of safety, given that there's already a war there, as you point out. It seems like more safety would be provided by a political resolution to this particular campaign than by NATO membership. But we have to have a kind of honest debate about what's already going on, what led to it, and what our next steps would likely, where they would lead. Just finally, Sam, you said something there that was rather intriguing. We know that there are volunteers from all around the world that have taken part, usually against the advice of their governments, by the way, but volunteers that have taken part in the Ukraine conflict. You've got a pretty good inside intel on this. Are you aware of American quote-unquote advisers being on the ground? This would uh, be very (laughs) redolent of uh, the Vietnam conflict 50 years ago. That began with American advisers in Vietnam and escalated into half a million troops. It's true. true. There have been advisors many places in the world that didn't escalate into half a million troops. So I don't think many people now foresee an escalation that would involve more honesty about how many Americans are already there, including formal government or actors, not just informal volunteers. But Joe Biden, I think, has openly been very clear Now, you might respond, well, old U.S. presidents like John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson also promise not to escalate. But it seems as if the war is sufficiently unpopular 
in the United States now, and indeed Donald Trump is running against it, that there's a kind of political constraint on escalation that didn't exist in the early years of the Vietnam conflict. So it's a source of concern. And I think we should know much more than we do, thanks to media and reporting about who's actually fighting and what categories they fall in, what nationality, whether they're volunteers, etc. How much intelligence is helping Ukraine, not just weapons transfers, but the risk of escalation in the sense you're suggesting seems slight for the moment. Professor Samuel Moyne of Yale University, one of the world's leading philosophers of law and human rights. Sam's got a new book out and we're going to come back to him in a month or so and talk about that. It's called Liberalism Against Itself. But for now, thanks for joining us on the program, Sam. Thanks as always, Andrew. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.